0: Good morning again. It's great to be together. Thank you for joining us for worship this morning. It's an exciting morning, at least for me, and hopefully it will end up being that for you as we get back to the book of Ephesians. We started Ephesians almost exactly a year ago. I think it was September 13th last year. And uh, took a break for the summer to preach through some of the Psalms, and so we are eager uh, as elders to get back to this great book, this foundational book, For the Christian life and especially as a newer church, we're so glad to be able to go through this. There's so much truth and so much encouragement for us as a body and for us as individual believers. So thank you for being with us. And as we get back to our text, as we get back to Ephesians today, we're picking up where we left off last spring, which is in somewhat of an awkward place. We're picking up at verse 14 of chapter 4. And so what we need to do is we need to back up a little bit because this text begins with the words, so that, which of course follows some other statement that Paul made. He says, this is what happened, this is what happened, so that you can do this. So we need to back up a little bit. And what I've decided to do after praying and thinking about this is I want to go back to the beginning of the book and preach the whole thing again. No, I'm just kidding. That'd be awesome. But I want to go back and just give some bullet points. We're just going to really quickly look at chapters 1, 2, and 3 because without that foundation, without knowing what God has done in Christ, the theology that the first three chapters give us, there will make no sense of these instructions now that we get in chapters 4, 5, and 6. So it's very important that we go back. Some of you weren't with us when we first started, and so for all of our benefit, that's what we're going to do this morning. So I'd invite you to open your Bible to Ephesians and follow along in the text as we notice some of these things working through. In the first chapter, the very beginning, Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ and immediately launches into this hymn, this song of praise to God for all of the things that he has done. Verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then in verses four to fourteen, Paul lists out many of these blessings that we experience as a result of God's work. Look at some of these as we go through. We have been chosen in Christ. God has predestined us. He has adopted us into his family Verse 7, we have been redeemed by the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus. The mystery of the gospel has been made known to us. We have obtained an inheritance. We have heard the gospel and believed in the gospel, which is a blessing in itself, and then been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. All of this designed intentionally by God so that the lives we live would be, as Paul says three times in that section, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Paul then moves on in chapter one and he prays that the eyes of this church, the Ephesian church, and us by extension, would be opened so that they can see there's three things, verse 18. What is the hope to which he has called you? what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power at work in us. He ends chapter 1 by detailing the power and the authority of Jesus Christ, having ascended to the right hand of God and being seated next to him, God has placed him as the head of the church. Chapter 2 now begins with Paul telling of our dead and helpless state before God intervenes. He labors the point that we all are either walking the path of the world or the path of Christ. And when we preached this, we made a big point about saying you cannot walk both directions at once. You are either following the course of the world or you are following the course of righteousness. You cannot do both. Whether you are a young person, middle-aged, older, we are all sinful. And Paul labors this point to help us understand that there is nothing we are able to do to earn favor with God. And then in verse 4, he says this. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even, that might be the most important word in that verse, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. There is no better news that you could hear in the universe than verse 4. None. God has taken depraved, helpless, sinful people, and by an act of His mercy has transferred us into the kingdom of His Son. This is the takeaway from the book of Ephesians if verse 4 is not true there is no Ephesians there is no chapter 4 telling us how we ought to live and there is no gospel but it is true God does extend mercy and grace and he saves the most undeserving of people like me and like you In verses 8, 9, and 10, we see how we were saved and why we were saved. God saves us by His grace alone, apart from any work that we could do, for the purpose of removing our grounds for boasting. Paul uses the word boast, which means to take credit for what happened. If our salvation is all of God's work, we have no right to take credit for it. Therefore, Paul says, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Verse 10 tells us that God did not save us just to do whatever we want, but that He has intentionally designed things for us to do. Ways to encourage one another, ways to serve in the body and use the gifts that He has given to us. Then as we move on now, in chapter 2, He explains how it is that both Jew and Gentile can be brought into the family of God. He says that the grace of God is not in any way restricted to a certain ethnicity or tribe or people group, but that it is indiscriminate. God's grace does not look for merit or history or qualification in people. It is simply His grace. And Paul uses this example of Jew and Gentile being brought together To show us that this is true, God's grace is available for all people to the degree that all other segregation, all other separation, not only ignores the fact that God has done what is seemingly impossible, but that it actually minimizes this reconciling work that God has done. Verse 19, chapter 2, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God. There is no dichotomy in God. There should be no dichotomy in his church. Dichotomy simply means to take a whole and split it. There is no splitting in God or his character. He does not prefer a certain people over another and neither should we. Chapter 3 continues then with this theme of unity in the church. And Paul tells us explicitly what this mystery is. He's been talking about this mystery, right? Verse 6 of chapter 3. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. And Chapter 3 then ends by Paul praying for this church that they would be strengthened with power through the Spirit to understand God's great love for them and to be filled with all the fullness of God. Now that is an unbelievably quick overview, but we need to recognize that all of the instruction we're going to see in chapter 4 moving on is grounded on the fact that God has already done what is necessary to reconcile us to himself. This instruction that we are going to see is not so that you can make yourself right with God. It is because we have been made right with God through the sacrifice of Jesus that we can have any hope of walking in obedience to him. Therefore, Paul starts with three chapters of telling us what God has done, not a single command in those first three chapters. Because Paul's focus is solely on the grace of God as it is seen in his redemption of his people. And now we come to chapter four. So if you're following along, I'm gonna start in chapter four, verse one, and read through our text, and we'll pray and get going for this morning. Ephesians chapter four. I encourage you to follow along. I therefore And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro Father, we need your help now as we come to this text. Our desire as a church is that we grow in maturity. And I pray that this is for the right reason. Just like Eric talked about walking in humility, Lord, we do not desire knowledge so that we can lord it over everybody else. We desire knowledge because in knowledge we know you, the one true God. So please this morning, Father, come and open our understanding. Help us to learn and read and apply this text in a way that will encourage us to walk worthy of the calling that you have called us to. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So what we're seeing here as we pick up in verse 14 is the continuation of the reason Paul is giving as to why Jesus Christ gave gifts to the church. If we back up to verse 11, it says, The risen Christ has given the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for equipping the church so that, we pick this thought up now in verse 13, we would no longer be children. So the, instructed, the instruction and the outcome that we see in verses 14 through 16 is a result of Jesus Christ giving gifts to the church in the form of people who handle his word, teach, exhort, correct, rebuke, all the kinds of things that Paul talks about. The way this works is that the leaders in the church, the shepherds, people who are responsible for handling the word of God, are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And as a result of this equipping ministry, as you come to know the Word of God and love the Word of God and put it into practice in your life, the result of that should be growth and maturity. It is the mission of our church to grow together. That's what Paul is calling us to here. Now, when we grow and mature, I'm going to say something really profound. When you mature, you become less immature. That might be the most profound thing you're going to hear me say all day. And that sounds really simple, but think about it. The process of maturity is that you leave behind elementary things and you pursue greater knowledge, greater understanding, greater awareness. This is what Paul is talking about. Part of that maturity is that we become more aware of what's going on around us. And Paul uses the example of a young child to help us understand this. And I think it's really good. Everybody knows, whether you're a parent or not, you've been around young kids, they are not the most aware. Right? They can walk into stuff, they can walk out in front of stuff, they can trip you without even trying to. They're just not aware, they don't know what's going on. And the thing about kids is that they can be very easily convinced of something with very little evidence. Not that I've ever taken advantage of this, but when my nephew Bo was really young, I convinced him that there was a bird living in my beard. This was before I shamedly shaved it off, but I would say, "Hey, come here, come here," and he'd, he'd bend over and he'd listen. And I, did, I made little chirping noises, and he thought there was a beard living. Don't, don't judge me. this is great material. Okay, But the point is, you can convince a child of something with very little evidence. Because for one thing, they're trusting, as they should be, but for another thing, they just don't know. They don't have the maturity to weigh the situation, make an informed decision, and go with that outcome. This is exactly the kind of behavior that Paul is encouraging us to move beyond as Christians in this text he is calling us to grow into maturity so that we aren't duped by anything we hear. Something comes up, well, oh, that sounds like a good idea, let's go with that. No, we're called to discernment, to maturity as Christians, and this is what we're learning here. Clinton Arnold, one of the commentators that I really enjoy, says that maturity is essential because it results in stability. Maturity is essential because it results in stability. You would not want a four-year-old in the White House running the country. You would not want a three-year-old running your household. There's no stability. It's unpredictable. But maturity leads to stability. Notice in verse 14, Paul uses the words tossed and carried. Tossed and carried. Both of these refer to a state of instability. Both of these also are voiced in a passive tense. This is something that is happening. You aren't intentionally going out and looking to be tossed around and carried about. It is happening to you. This is a situation where we allow ourselves to be blown off course. It's not always that we go looking for something false. Right? Right? I don't think any of us would set out saying, I want to know what's false and I'm going to buy into that. But it's tricky and it's sneaky and things tend to creep in. And this is referring, Paul's talking about a time when we don't have the maturity or the discernment to know what's going on, to know what's right and wrong and therefore we just go with whatever sounds good. Paul uses the terms waves and wind. In this illustration as well, these are things, we know this from being out of nature, that can be very persuasive, very powerful. Paul is warning us that if we do not grow, if we do not mature, and come to a place of stability, we will be blown around like a leaf in the wind. We're coming into the fall season. Leaves are going to start dropping. And once they hit the ground, it does not take much to move them around. In fact, when we want to clean them up, we use a leaf blower. We use wind to move them because that works well. They just go wherever the wind goes. That's not what the Christian life is. We're not supposed to be blown around by everything that sounds good. We are to root ourselves in the Word of God, know what the Word says, and live accordingly, come what may. Don't be a leaf. There is no stability in a leaf. There is no permanence in a leaf. A leaf goes wherever the wind takes it. And Paul's call to maturity, his call to growth in this text, is motivated by the fact that he desires the church be stable and firm. He uses words when he writes to Timothy about foundation and buttress and fortress, how the church is to be the foundation, not a leaf, not something blown around. Now let's talk about these three potential dangers that Paul is warning us about in this text. First, every wind of doctrine. Every wind of doctrine. Paul's primary concern for the church, I believe, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, once delivered to the saints, as Jude would say, would be protected and preserved and promoted. If, if we have no root, if we have no stability, which comes from maturity, everything is going to seem like a good idea. And nothing will be off limits. Okay, the thing about being blown around by everything that sounds good is that, well, sure, it sounds good. Let's just go with that. Nothing is off limits in this. But Paul is warning us against this. Earlier in chapter 4, he gave us what we called earlier the creed of the Christian church. This was a collection of how the church thinks about different things. In chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism One God and Father of all. This is the doctrine of the church that Paul is eager to protect, eager to guard against other things, filtering in and going, okay, I know that's true, but have you considered this? Maybe Jesus wasn't really God. Oh, I never thought about that. And little by little by little, you get wound off course. Paul wants to protect against that. This is the doctrine of the church that Paul is protecting. Now doesn't this imply, as you hear this, doesn't this imply that those of us who are called to handle the word of God, to teach, not just in the pulpit, I'm talking in the church, in your family, in your household, doesn't this imply the absolute seriousness of what goes on when you open the Bible? There is truth To guard against, there is error that is always lurking close about. And the importance of relying upon the Spirit of God to direct us, to open our understanding, to see what is true and keep us from every wind of doctrine is absolutely paramount. In fact, James chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Not many of you should become teachers, brothers, because you know that those of us who teach are held to a higher standard of accountability. The handling of the Word of God is so important, so essential to the church, that James actually says, be careful. Don't just jump into that position. It is a serious thing. The purity of the gospel is so primary and this i think is why we read earlier in ephesians 4:11 that jesus christ gave gifts to the church in the form of people who handle his word we don't put ourselves in those positions i don't just wake up one day and decide you know what i'm not afraid of speaking in public i know how to put stuff together i think i'll be a preacher wrong God calls men to the ministry. God equips them to handle the word. This is what Paul told the Ephesian elders, and I would encourage you to go back to Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, we read about some conversations that Paul had while he was in Ephesus, talking to these elders, instructing them, encouraging them, and he tells them this in verse 28 of Acts 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now even though elders and pastors are elected to those positions by the church, which is how it should be, God is ultimately the one who oversees the handling of his word. Now that's not to say I can stand up here and say, well, God put me here, I can do whatever I want. That is to say God put me here and that should humble me under his word to be so careful that it is handled correctly. Which is why time and again, and I say it again, hold me accountable to this. I don't care what your opinion is. I don't care what my opinion is. What does the word of God say? That's our foundation and that is our rock. Now, second thing that Paul's warning against is what he calls human cunning, human cunning. In Paul's view, these variant teachings that are blowing people around are not innocent errors on the part of people who are promoting them, but are a part of an intentional strategy that is designed to lead people away from the truth of the gospel. I'm sure that Paul has in mind here the deception and the trickery that Satan used when he tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden. In fact, when we read Genesis 3, we see some of the same language, right? That the crafty serpent was there. Crafty, cunning. Intentionally trying to sneak in and change the way that Eve thought. The thing to watch out for, and I think this is really important, the thing to watch out for with false teaching is that it will always have an element of truth in it. That's why so many people are led astray. Because it sounds good. Of course it sounds good. There's some truth in it. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, what did he do? He quoted Scripture to him. He twisted it. But he quoted Scripture to the Son of God. There's always an element of truth in a lie which is why we need the Holy Spirit so desperately to open our understanding. That's why Paul prays time and time again, open their eyes, open the eyes of their heart. How are you going to know what's true? You need the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God. I am convinced of that. We are to watch out for this kind of cunning craftiness. And this is the craftiness of human reason. Paul wants us to grow in maturity so that we can recognize what is false and hit it head on with what is true. At the end of Romans 12, Paul says this, 12.21, do not be overcome with evil but overcome evil with good. We apply that to our text today. We might say, don't succumb to teaching that is false That goes against the word of God, but meet it with the truth and the truth will win out. Don't be led astray by what sounds good, but hold it against the word of God. This is why the Bereans were commended in the book of Acts because they did not just take everything at face value, but they searched the scriptures to see if those things were so. It's called the analogia fide, the analogy of faith, comparing Scripture to Scripture to see if it lines up, and it is so important for us to do that. Now, the third thing Paul is concerned with is what he calls craftiness in deceitful schemes. Now, we probably all know that not everything in life is intentionally misleading. Right? There are sometimes times and we just get into something and we really honestly had no idea and you get into it and then you find out, okay, this is where I'm at. But the word that Paul uses at the end of verse 14 tells us that he is not referring to innocent mistakes or unwitting actions here. When he says deceitful schemes, we should think intentional misleadings. Intentional misleadings. There are people who are motivated by their hatred of God, their hatred of His Word, who will intentionally try to mislead other people, to get them to fall away, to get them to doubt what God has told us. And despite the numerous instances we see in the Bible of this satanic tactic, we still fall for it at times, don't we? Because there's always an element of truth mixed in with it. The word scheme tells us that this is not just haphazard, this isn't accidental, but this craftiness is on purpose. Sometimes we have a hard time, at least I do, I have a hard time imagining that there are people who are actively trying to undermine my confidence in the Word of God, trying to make me question His Word. But as I said, this should not be surprising. It is literally the oldest trick in the book. What happened 6,000 years ago in the Garden of Eden? What did Satan do? He tried to get Eve to question the word of God. Did God really say that? Or today it might sound like, is that really what the Bible means? Yeah, that was was a long time ago. That was a cultural thing. We We don't need to do that. You start to doubt the truthfulness of the Bible. And if Satan can plant a seed of doubt and water it with a little bit of supporting evidence, he will grow that into something that will choke you unless you have a weapon. And that weapon is the Word of God and the Spirit of God. This craftiness, this deceitfulness is so dangerous. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 to pursue growth, to leave aside childish things, to pursue maturity and likeness, so that we will not easily be led astray by every wind of doctrine, that we won't be a leaf fluttering in the wind, but we will be an oak tree, rooted, grounded, planted beside the stream of God's Word. Now, I think we need to spend a few minutes considering what this looks like right now, what this means for us right now. I was going to go through the end of 16, but it just it seemed better to, to stop here and, and apply this in some helpful ways. So we'll pick 15 and 16 up next week. But right now, what we need to do is ask. What are the things we need to watch out for? We know the Bible warns against this. We know that there's admonition and exhortation against getting sucked into these things and there's calls for discernment. But what does that mean? How does that play out right now, right in our life? And believe me, it's relevant. This isn't historical information only. And yet it has been dealt with all through history. In the early church... There was so many claims against the validity of Christianity and against the doctrine of the church and all of these heretical things came up, which is where we get a lot of our creeds and confessions because the church fathers needed to describe the doctrine of a church in a helpful way. And when people would come into the church, they would say, do you believe in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and the virgin birth and all these things, they would put doctrine together because it is so important to guard the purity of the gospel. So there's three things that I want to give as examples as we end our time together. Three things that I think are relevant to our day, things that you are going to run into as far as what is false. What is a false teaching? And I'm not going to call out any ministries, any pastors, any whatever. That's not my place. God will handle that. I hope that I will be corrected on areas where my theology is off or you know, lacking. It's not my job to do that. My job is to equip you to recognize what is false, to tell you from the Word of God what is true and say, stand for truth. So here's three things, three false teachings that I believe are common today. A false teaching is any teaching that removes God from the center any teaching that removes God from the center. When we read the Bible, we should get the overwhelmingly clear picture that God is central. He is at the core of everything, He is unchanging, He is the sovereign Lord of all who gives life. And breath to all his creatures who ordains the events of our life and has demonstrated his love for us in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for our sins. He is the center of our existence. And any doctrine, any theology that seeks to elevate man to the same plane as God is a false doctrine. And this can happen so subtly. It's not that you're going to go somewhere or turn a program on and hear somebody say, you can be equal to God. But what are they going to do? How does this normally sound? It's not that it just openly often does that. Sometimes it does, but it's not that common. More commonly, we hear things like this. You have the power to change yourself. You can be the one to control your future. You can work hard enough to please God. You can change your life. And you're like, oh, well, that sounds pretty good. The problem is, that's not the gospel. That's self-help. And that's at Barnes & Noble. Leave it there. You don't need to fix your money first. You don't need to fix your marriage. You need to fix your heart. And the gospel does that. So any teaching that removes God from the center and elevates man's responsibility in the equation is a false teaching because it robs God of the glory he rightfully deserves. We just saw this in our overview of Ephesians. God saved us by his grace alone so that he alone gets the glory for our salvation. And when any kind of theology elevates man to a position of taking responsibility, even in a small way, It robs God of the glory that He deserves. Any gospel that elevates man and diminishes God's work is a false gospel. Second, any teaching that emphasizes one aspect of God to the neglect of the rest can be a false gospel. This one can be harder to pin down because we, we hear people and we see things and it's like, well, they're they're opening the Bible. They're, they're what what how 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 could that be bad? You know, it's they're using the Bible. Are they? Another thing Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 was that he had not held back from teaching them the whole counsel of God. All of God's attributes, all of His character, all of His dealings are essential for us to know Him. And when we take one aspect of God, no matter what it is, we take one aspect of God and we hammer and hammer and hammer on that and never talk about the rest of Him. How does that honor God? How does that help us to know who God is in His Entirety, and it is so easy to emphasize the things we understand and to neglect things that are uncomfortable or we don't understand, or better yet, for today, the word might be unpopular. The Bible doesn't call us to preach the part of the gospel that we like, (laughs) the Bible calls us to preach the whole gospel, and that includes the whole Christ all of God's character, all of his ast- a- attributes. It'd be really easy to build a big ministry and get a ton of people in you. Just stay away from the controversial stuff. Just don't, don't, don't tell me that I have sin to deal with. Nah, gross. I don't want to deal with that. Just tell me God loves me. Tell me I'm okay the way I am and I can just try hard enough and I'll be fine. <laughs> It's not the gospel. The gospel, which the word gospel means good news, the reason it is good news is because it not only gives us the, the good part, the hope, it tells us how absolutely helpless we are without Jesus. And if you don't start with that, if you neglect the part that says, here's the problem, here's the solution, and you just jump to the solution, it makes no sense. We need to, and this is a call for, I am speaking to myself here. Preach the whole counsel of God. Read the whole counsel of God. Don't just jump to the places that are familiar and comfortable that you understand. Challenge yourself. Pray for God to open your understanding that you would know Him more. Any teaching that overemphasizes one aspect of God to the neglect of others is dangerous. This is why as elders at Grace Bible Church, we are absolutely committed to what we call consecutive exposition, meaning that we start at the beginning of a book and work our way through in the preaching schedule. That should be the main diet of the church because... It forces us to deal with whatever God has in his word and it does not allow me as the preacher to pick and choose the parts that I know or that I'm comfortable with and just preach on that. It's not to say that there will never be topical sermons. It's not to say there will never be addressing of issues that need to be addressed. But the primary diet of this church, by God's grace, will be consecutive exposition. Because it forces us to deal with all of God and all of his word. Third and lastly, a false teaching is any teaching that goes against the clear instruction of the Bible. This should be pretty obvious. We're going to see this now as we get into the second half of the book of Ephesians where there's all of this instruction and all of these commands and all this language related to our conduct and our morality and the way we conduct ourselves in our homes and in our marriages and in our life and all this kind of stuff. And when you hear teaching that goes directly against the clear teaching of the Scriptures, back out. This is blatant. (laughs) This is blatant, meaning it's in your face. And there are Sadly, people who preach a gospel that is just contradictory to what the Scripture says. This isn't just a different way of interpreting things. It's not just that, you know, well, they see it that way and I see it this way. We have to come to the place where we understand that the Bible contains objective truth. And what I mean by that, it is true whether I feel it to be true or not. When Jesus prayed in John 17, he says to the Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Not just your word is true, like I could look at it and come to the determination that the Bible is true, but truth, objective truth that is true whether Jacob thinks it's true or not. And our call as Christians is to submit ourselves to that truth. And any teaching that goes directly against the clear teaching of the Scripture is false. Now, of course, there are interpretive differences. We could both come to the same passage and come away with different applications, different ideas, but that's because the Word of God is living and active. That's not a bad thing. The Word of God speaks to each one. I don't know how many times I have come down after a service and somebody comes up and says, Really appreciated this or this. And I'm like, I didn't say that. I don't remember saying that. But the Word of God speaks. It speaks to each of us because, as Hebrews tells us, it is living and active and sharper than a two edged sword. We need to recognize what is true, stand for the truth. And like I said before, this is my call, pray like crazy that God through his Holy Spirit would reveal to us what is true, what is right, what is good and pure and pleasant. This is Philippians 4.8, all of the things that Paul says to set our minds there so that we can recognize. This isn't, I'm not telling you this so that you can go, oh, (laughs) I know a church who acts like that. I'm going to go, I'm going to get them, get them. That's not the point of this. The point of this is to inform you so that as you deal with people, as you deal with those you have relationship with, you can gently and kindly say, that's interesting, what does the Bible say? Bring it back to the Word of God. This is our foundation. Like I said before, your opinion is very insignificant. So is mine. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying the Bible, the Bible is our source. This is our foundation. Let's make it that way. And God and His grace, please do it. Let's pray, Lord. I I feel so inadequate. I'm up here talking about what is false, and I I just need Your help. I need Your help to keep me from that. God, don't let me wander into what is unhelpful and secondary and inconsequential. Keep us locked onto the primary truth of your word. Lord, we don't want to be leaves. We don't want to be blown around by every wind that comes up and every popular opinion or everything that sounds good on the surface. God, ground us in your word. Help us move from childhood to maturity. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ so that we can stand firm when we're challenged, that we can defend the truth of the gospel. And God, help us to do this with grace, with love, with gentleness and patience. It's a difficult task. But you have called us to stand for truth and would we recognize your word as true and stand there by your help. Thank you for this time. Please apply this text now in helpful ways for us, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.